to another Godcast from Whosoever, an online magazine for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender Christians. I'm Candace Shalou Hodge, the founder and editor of Whosoever. Thanks for joining us. I haven't done podcasts in a while because of time constraints, but I've been doing interviews recently for religion dispatches that deserve to be podcasts in their own right. So instead of a nice, polished Godcast, this one will be stripped down a bit, just featuring the heart of my latest interviews. So today, Diana Butler Bass will talk about her new book called Christianity After Religion. First, I do invite you to check out whosoever.org if you haven't been there in a while. Our latest issue focuses on the theme of letting go, and some of our best writers like Lori Hine, uh, John Campbell, and Reverend Susie Shamness all tackle this theme of letting go. So check it out at whosoever.org slash v16i4, or you can access it from the homepage over at whosoever.org. Now, the United States is currently in the throes of a spiritual awakening, according to author Diana Butler Bass. In her new book, Christianity After Religion, Bass says we're at a crossroads in history. We can choose to move forward into new emerging spiritualities, or we can heed the siren song of the traditionalists calling us back to a romanticized past where rigid roles have offered security for the powerful and the status quo for everybody else. We are not passive observers, Bass writes, but active participants in shaping the future to come. Bass herself has been at the forefront of this emergent spirituality movement, writing such past books as Christianity for the Rest of Us and A People's History of Christianity. I had a chance to talk with Bass about her book and about why this seemingly crazy religion-infused GOP primary race is simply part and parcel of the next awakening that's going to transform how we all structure and experience religion as well as society in the future. So my first question to Diana was this. In your book, you write about the U.S. and other places around the world that are in the throes of a spiritual awakening. Tell us what you mean by that. One of the things I think is very important is to separate sort of two terms that are often confused in um, American religion, and that's the the term revival um, and awakening. Um, Those are actually two different things. I like to remind people that a revival is, you know, it's a ritualized event. It happens with some regularity. You go to a revival meeting. You go to a church that has a revival. And the point of a revival is to stir up individuals so that they have some sort of new encounter with God, be it getting born again or baptized in the Holy Spirit. An awakening is not a revival. An awakening is not an individual or a ritualized event, but rather an awakening is a larger cultural event where the whole of a, of a society or group of people uh, become changed, uh, transformed, re, reoriented towards something new. Um, and in the literature of awakening, uh, awakenings are typically understood as revitalization movements that happen to groups uh, rather than individuals. So when I talk about the fact that we're in an awakening, I believe that we're in a period of intense cultural reorientation or revitalization. And um, that during an awakening, politics, uh, worldviews, religion, um, education, sort of the whole way that a a society approaches being community and connecting with one another and understanding their God or their gods, it all changes. And so my book is to examine that change and to try to make it very clear as to where we might be going um, in the future. 
And you write about the rising number of those who claim none when they're asked about religious affiliation and how church attendance across the board, even in these more fundamentalist evangelical churches, is showing a a decline. Now, if that's true and people are more, quote unquote, spiritual than religious right now, what do you really make of this huge role that religion has been playing, especially in this GOP presidential primary? Um, the, I, I think that the, the rise of the nuns is a really fascinating thing, and it actually fits in with the idea of awakening much better than what people think. Um, and that is, for, for an awakening to happen, old institutions have to go away. What once existed has to has to change. And so so what we are in the moment of at this at right now in American culture is that our old institutions, our way of being church, our way of understanding, you know, any kind of religious tradition, what be it Judaism or Islam or Christianity, whatever, um all of those older patterns are dying. And indeed, I think that you can look at the first decade of the 21st century and see that there has just been a massive failure of religious institutions. So when that kind of failure happens, when that kind of death is occurring, what is happening concurrently is that the people who used to be part of those institutions are now unaffiliated. They literally, the institutions have failed them, and they are now kind of just floating around without necessarily having a clear set of religious uh, labels that they identify themselves with, or they lack a sort of institutional home. So when it comes to awakenings, I look at those people who are unaffiliated, the folks who say none of the above, and I say, wow, that to me is a sign of the transformation that we're going through, and that more and more people understand uh, that we're moving to a new place and are willing to take the risk, freeing themselves up and and exploring their spiritual lives in different ways. I think eventually a large number of those people will reaffiliate in some way, shape, or form. Uh, but when they do, the I think the actual institutions of religion are going to be very different. And they're going to be very different because of the demands that those people make um, upon new kinds of churches or new kinds of synagogues or new kinds of mosques. So on one hand, I look at that whole arc of people who are leaving church because of the failure of the institutions. And I don't see that as threatening. I see that as a really exciting and hopeful possibility if religious institutions will listen to the message that those people are sending them. And then the, the, the other question, the other half of your question is, well, how does this relate to then, say, the growth of con- the conservative movement in the the GOP and the presidential elections. Well, when you have this kind of institutional collapse, when you have this large group of people who are demanding a different kind of faith and moving out, taking risks towards an unknown future, that is actually going to terrify a large number of people who are happy with the way things have been. And so on one hand, you get movement towards the future, you get people taking risks, you get people who are willing to engage new ideas about God and community and spirit, and on the other hand, you get a counter-awakening movement. You get people who are very afraid and who are trying to reinstate what they knew in the past. And so I think that both of these parts of the pattern of awakening are clearly visible in our culture. and 
And for me, when I see both the movement towards the future and the risk-taking and the people who are stepping outside of the accepted boundaries, and I see the people who are um, what I would call the old lights, that's what they've always historically been called in American religion, people who resist the change of awakening. Um, when I see that kind of old light movement going on in culture, I just think, well, that's, that's a pretty typical pattern in the midst of cultural change. And it helps me to say, okay, this is really where we are. Uh, we can expect this kind of backlash or counter movement. And the question then becomes, well, which way will the whole of the culture swing? Will the culture swing in the direction of the people who are taking risks and trying to move towards the future? Or will the backlash movement become so strong that it will slow or perhaps even halt the idea of an awakening toward a different kind of religious and spiritual life in America? And so I think that that's kind of where we are. We're, we're standing right there at that crossroads. Um, which way is this going to move? And and that's that become then it becomes up to us. <laughs> uh, you know, what we do makes a difference in how the culture actually changes. Um, so so I think that both of these are very important dimensions of an awakening. So what's your feeling? Do you get a feeling of which direction the country might go? I mean, it just seems that everywhere you turn, the the politicians are talking about abortion and, and, and you know, um, uh, female reproduction and birth control. And, you know, they're, they're talking about these things that, that seem to be settled issues like forever ago. I mean, even gay people get swept off the map um, with all this, you know, it seems. And, and of course, the media attention intensifies it. It makes it seem like it may be bigger than it really is. But right. I, I live in Virginia. Yeah, you know? yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I, I'm well aware of what's going on. Um, you know, it, uh, when I look, at my, my, my PhD is actually in, in American religious history. And, and so my sort of default sort of move whenever I'm in a, a moment in time that seems like everything around me is dark or failing. I, I, I always look back to the past and I say, well, what did those people do, you know, who came before us? And, and the, there's a reason why there, the old, there's an old phrase that's darkest before the dawn is that oftentimes in American history, some of the greatest movements forward towards social justice and greater sense of democracy and uh, new religious institutions some of those things happened only when there were also very dark chapters in American history that immediately precede them. So you get, at the very same time in American history, you get the progressive movement unfolding while you have the strongest sort of um, expression of the Klan in the 19-teens and the 1920s. And those two things are happening at the exact same time. Um, what what, what, of course, we know, looking 100 years later, is that the progressive movement, it won, uh, at least in the early part of the 20th century, and that the Klan, although I'm sure, you know, it, it seemed horrible. I mean, there were huge Klan rallies in the teens and the 20s all across the United States, and, and it, it, it was horrible, and it seemed probably like it was going to win in places like Mississippi or or you know, Indiana and some other places where it was very strong. 
uh, but they didn't. Um, they had a sort of a high water mark, and then people sort of turned around and said, "We don't want to go there. You know that, that that's really bad." And it's sure enough, those other those counter movements they eventually kind of ebb away, and the other thing became the dominant sort of story of American culture. Uh, so I think that what happens is that I, I, that's what I'm hope, hoping is that we're in one of those kind of moments where the the backward sort of and I don't want to say backward in the sense of you know medieval or uh, insult the people as individuals. I think that there's just this sort of uh, disposition that people look to the past and say that's better and and they want to go back to it because it was comfortable or it was orderly or they think it was more truthful or they think, you know, there's some affection that serves them for wanting to, to be in those kinds of movements. And I can, I can understand that as a person with a sort of a pastoral heart because it's, the future is scary. It hasn't happened yet. Um, and so, so I, I, I think that those kinds of backward gazing movements, those nostalgic movements um, can be very strong at times of change. And I, and I hope right now that, again, we're at one of those sort of high water marks of, of one of those kinds of movements. And people will just kind of look at it and say, you know, no, you know, that would be wrong. You know, we've gone too far down a different road and, and we, we can't uh, go back to where we once were in terms of women's roles or in terms of the equality that gay and lesbian people have made, have, have achieved in some places and in terms of race relations and diversity and all these kinds of things that are really good parts of American culture. And so I think that we'll get, I think we'll get there. I hope we get there fast because I don't like it when people, I, I don't like it when people get hurt, you know, <laughs> and that's the, that's what happens. Yeah, that's what happens with these backlash movements is that they can, they can initiate they, or they can express themselves, excuse me, in violence. And, and that becomes a, you know, a real problem uh, for the victims, obviously, like in the lynching movement or the, cl- the clan movement or some violence directed against women. Um, but it also, that kind of violence also does harm to the people who are in the, the mode of the fearful. Um, and so, so that becomes a sort of a, a devastating cultural moment uh, when these backlash movements result in violence. And uh, I, I know that there's enough of it around in scattered places that I don't want to see any more of it. Talking about hope, I mean, right now, especially in the in the GOP primary, I mean, they're really playing to the base. They're playing to that hard right wing um, right now. I mean, maybe in the general election, do you have a sense that that perhaps some of this religion talk might dissipate or soften? Uh, no. No? Oh. I don't have any hope that this, <laughs> this talk of religion is going to soften as we move into November. Okay. okay. I think it will still be there. Um, it. I mean, it kind of depends. If Mitt Romney is the nominee, I think he will, he's continually wants to sidestep the religious talk. Um, you know, and he has good reason for doing that. It, people don't understand Mormonism and have a sort of a fundamental, most American Protestants and Catholics kind of have a fundamental, I think, sort of distrust or unsure, unsurety, uncertainty about Mormonism. So, so I think that, you know, he, he continually wants to play it down. But if, you know, if he, if he brings on a vice presidential candidate like 
Bob McDonald of Virginia, there's there, there's no way it's going to be uh, diminished. And um, I suspect that the vice presidential candidate will be the sort of the the person who carries the narrative for the religious right, if it's Romney. And then if it's somebody else, you know, and I'm not even convinced that the nominee is going to come out of these four people that are still in the process. I have long thought that there is going to be a different nominee. And um, we're just going to have to wait to see how that plays itself out when we get to the get to the summer. If it's Santorum, man, all bets are off. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, and, and, you know, who knows? He might be it. He, he's, in some ways, a very attractive character. If you just sort of listen to his speeches, and if you were in the worldview of the people he's trying to appeal to, I can see why they would like him. You know, he's, he's young. He's, he's much more charismatic than I've seen him be before. And he offers a sort of a cohesive worldview that a lot of people find appealing. So, so um, you know, he's he is definitely a person to watch out for, if not in this election cycle, certainly in another one. Indeed. Well, let's talk a little bit more about about your your book. Then um, uh, you talk about how you you believe that all of these endings in religion, you know, that the churches in decline, the rise of the nuns. Um, you know, are really, in a sense, giving way to to new beginnings, and you and you map out the stages of this new awakening. Can you explain that map a little bit and how you see how you see it at work in the American religious life today? Well, this is a very deep part of the of the book, as as um, as you know, the an awakening, this idea of a cultural revitalization uh, movement or movements that's pushing us towards a different kind of future, a future that's more just, more egalitarian and more democratic. And, um, if you look at the history, American religious history, there have been three other such awakenings and, and those happened in the late 1700s, 1740 to 1770, 1800 to 1840, and then 1880 to about 1930. That was the, the third one that I mentioned there is the progressive movement that I was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, since 1930, that there's probably out there somewhere a fourth great awakening. And that's actually what I think we're more that, that we're in right now. Now, each one of those awakenings, as has been noticed by historians, um, has a sort of an internal pattern to it, the way that it unfolds. And it's a very simple uh, pattern uh, that involves five sort of steps that a culture has to go through in order to be changed. And the first one is... Uh, uh, a sense of the loss of legitimacy um, and that we were just talking about when institutions fail and individuals kind of look around and they say, yeah, gosh, is something wrong? Why aren't things working? And in this sort of loss of legitimacy, people will tend to sort of blame themselves. They'll kind of look out and they'll say, you know, things don't seem right. Is it me? You know, I wonder if this is my fault. Uh, maybe I just need to get in line. If I if I believe harder, or if I commit myself to my church again, you know everything will be okay. Uh, so that's the first step: a loss of legitimacy, that wondering, "Am I crazy?" moment. And the, the second thing is what's called cultural disillusionment, and that's the stage in which all those people who are individuals who have sensed that something was wrong 
they find each other. And at that second stage, the cultural disillusionment, uh, people begin to realize that it isn't them as individuals, but it really, really, truly is institutions. That the political process has failed, that educational institutions have failed, that the justice system has failed, and that religious institutions have failed. And then people say, well, now what are we going to do? Um, and they begin to press for change. It's in this second stage that historians have noticed that is the most typical stage when nativist movements emerge in the United States. And so whether that's a movement that says, oh, the problem is um, that uh, we have too many of these uh, Native American tribes around and we've got to kill them all. You know? and, they, and so people begin to look for a scapegoat during this second stage and that if they can sacrifice the right scapegoat, uh, then the institutions will be fixed. And so it's been different scapegoats in American history, black slaves, uh, native peoples, women, uh, Roman Catholics. Um, it, it sort of just depends on what the cultural, where the cultural pressure is. Um, but not everybody will go along with those kinds of scapegoating or nativist movements. And, and yet their sense of failure with the institution remains. And it's among those people that a third stage begins to emerge. And that's a stage of new vision where people begin to say, hey, maybe this is possible. And they begin to articulate uh, new ways of seeing what it means to be a person of faith, what it means to live in a democracy, what's the nature of community. And those people begin preaching, teaching, sharing, uh, tr trying to shape a different kind of future. Uh, the fourth stage, following the, the, the beginnings of the new vision stage, the fourth stage is the stage of what is called attraction. And that is the people who have the vision begin to attract followers. And, at, and then those followers uh, and, the, and, and the people who are the cultural visionaries begin to experiment with creating new forms of community, with creating new kinds of political arrangements or, or new kinds of educational uh, media. Um, and, and, and finally, in the fifth stage, um, it's never been called this before, but Malcolm Gladwell gave us some neat language where we can borrow it. Um, you kind of get, you get to a cultural tipping point where you now, in the last stage, all those people who have been sitting on the fence, kind of watching this, this whole scenario of change unfold, those people vote. They decide if they want to go with the people who are the new visionaries or if they want to backtrack with the counter-awakening movement, whatever form it takes. And if those people in the fifth stage move with the new thing, then you get institutional renewal you get entirely new ways of thinking about what it means to be people of faith. You get new educational institutions. You get new cultural patterns that emerge. So those are the five stages. Loss of, uh, loss of legitimacy, cultural distortion, new vision, attraction, and transformation. Um, and that transformation will be one way or the other. It will be either to go back or to go forward. And so that's I. I think I think right now we're somewhere. There are lots of indi an individual could be further down. You know, you could be like a stage five individual. You know, you could already be transforming a sort of a, a small portion of the culture in your backyard, as it were. You know, sort of a local cultural transformation. 
Uh, so there can be individuals that are in any part of this pattern, but I think as a as a nation, um, we're somewhere between the what I would call the late second stage, where people kind of now all get that institutions have failed, and even uh, perhaps a, an early fourth stage, where there's um, enough experimentation, enough new vision that people are being attracted to new ways of being. And so there's beginning to be some real energy of transformation uh, that's going on. Now, you write about um, <clears throat> some of the reasons that people aren't going to church anymore, that, they, that perhaps they're angry at the church or they're bored with the church. Or, you know, it's just not fulfilling their their needs. So what do you think that people really want out of religion these days? Oh, wow, that's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I think they don't want is I think that they don't want uh, they don't want to be wounded and they don't want to be bossed around and they don't want to be treated like children. Um, and instead, I think that people want to be part of spiritual communities where they they are valued in terms of their life experience and the insight that they bring into the construction of religious life and their understandings of God and neighbor. Um, so I think that there's a real need for religious institutions to listen to uh, the voice of, of all of God's people uh, rather than telling them what to do. And so I think that's one thing that people really care about, uh, being affirmed in, in the sense of the sort of the wisdom that is, part of the common human experience. Um, so I think that's one thing. And I also think that people do want deep ways of trying to connect um, with, with who they really are. People want to understand their own inner lives. And, and insofar as religious institutions can help people make those connections and have a deep sense of awareness of who, who they are as persons and who God has made them to be. I think that's a, that would be a real step ahead. Yeah. And, and also connection with, with um, God, um, you know, how do you connect with wonder, all transcendence? And how do we connect with our neighbors in meaningful ways? How do we form networks of care, networks of doing justice, networks of service, in which we can make a better, uh, better world? And so I think that those things, appreciation and a, um, acceptance of who we really are and then connection uh, to those three layers of, of relational life to ourselves, to our neighbors, and to God. I think that's spot on. That's what my congregation says it wants. <laughs> oh, okay. Very great. <laughs> See that, and that's, it's, that's happening. I mean, that to me is really exciting is that people tell me that all the time. Oh, gosh, you know, my... I think that the church is the church's sort of institutional bureaucracy is going nowhere fast, but my congregation and when i as soon as I hear that, then I actually know that there are thousands of 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 smaller groups of of folks uh in Christian congregations, Jewish congregations, Buddhist meditation groups, yoga classes they're meeting all over the place, and they do experience that and that to me those are the communities of attraction that are beginning to embody the spirit of the new awakening and that's where it's happening um and so so i get very excited when i hear people say oh yeah my church you know yeah that's i mean that's exactly what our congregation talks about you know are, are all of those things um and especially the awe and the wonder and the mystery and 
and living into who you believe God has called you to be. That's, I mean, that's, that's all at the top of their agenda. That's, that's really what they want to talk about. And this is where the whole thing about uh, uh, women and, and uh, LBGT folks is very important because the demand, it's, it's, those movements, of course, have been liberationist movements uh, for a long time and have made, you know, tremendous strides and helped all of us become a better country. But there's something even deeper than them just being liberationist movements, that they, that, that what's happening is that women and gay and lesbian persons, bisexual persons, transgender persons are saying, we're people. And that our whole personhood is in God. And we want to be part of community that hears the wisdom of our experience, that accepts us for who we really are. And so in a very real sense, what the feminist movement and, and uh, the gay, lesbian, liberationist kinds of movements have become, I think, for religious communities, is really a sort of a test of hospitality. Um, and that is, are you really open to accepting and welcoming everyone? And is that is the personhood of the gay couple as welcome as the personhood of the straight couple? You know, and so that becomes a real sort of, to me, a test of the awakening. It's not just simply what's your political p- position about the rights of these 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 people, but are these people really people? And is their full wisdom, their full experience, their full sense of who they are really, truly welcomed into the deepest realms of making community? And that's where I think that, um, you know, that's, to me, that, that becomes a powerful part of this awakening. It's not, it's not just about making laws to make people welcome, but it's actually about creating new patterns of community where everyone really, truly is welcome. What I see in the gay community, in the gay and lesbian community especially, is a, is a movement and, a, and, a, and a, a yearning to no longer be in their own, I don't want to say ghettoized churches, but, but I mean, it's that sort of an idea. I mean, you know, Metropolitan Community Church started because gay and lesbian people weren't welcome within the congregations of their heritage. And so, and so gay churches started. And, and from, from what I'm getting from a lot of the folks in the gay and lesbian community is that they don't want gay churches. They want to be in church with, with other people where, where their personhood is recognized and accepted and where they are um, celebrated, you know, for who they are and who they are in God and how, and how their, their entire lives come into play, not just a sexual orientation. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Cause which one of who, who, who among us really wants to just be known by one aspect of our relational lives. It's an important aspect and it informs the other aspects of, of who we are. But, you know, it would just be as silly as, you know, somebody saying to me, oh, look, there's Diana. She's straight. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, she goes to that straight church. Yeah. It's a, so, <laughs> right. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm more than who I'm attracted to or who I, you know, sleep beside at night, you know. Yeah. And I, and I really believe that the, the, the awakening that we are pushing toward is, is really going to, 
move in these kinds of directions, that it's a, an awakening where we're going to be able to go past boundaries that once um, were insurmountable, um, and, and that it's over these boundaries that we're going to find new friends and we're going to find new ways of loving God and we're going to find new ways of engaging God's reign in the world. And and I, that's where we're moving. And and that becomes that that again becomes frightening to some people because they feel like they can't make those leaps. Um, they don't see women as fully human. They don't see their gay and lesbian friends as having a personhood from which they can learn or which they can be friends. And so those those boundaries remain incredibly important for some people because they just they they can't imagine a world where those boundaries no longer exist. I was actually listening to Rick Santorum, and he was talking about this very thing. He was talking about the need for people to have these roles. Um, and it's it's the roles that provide safety and order and, um, you know, f- freedom from the fear of chaos. And And it's only if we can go back and, you know, have all these roles reestablished that everyone will be safe. Well, that's not where we're going. We're going to a new place. And it's going to be hard for some folks to make it there. To learn more about Diana Butler Bass, visit her website at dianabutlerbass.com. Thanks so much for joining us for another Whosoever Magazine Godcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. You can tell us your thoughts, comments, or suggestions by writing to us. Our email address is editor at whosoever.org, or you can leave comments at our blog at whosoeverpods.blogspot.com. The theme music for our program has been graciously provided by Adam Kearley. If you're enjoying our podcast, please consider making a monetary donation to our ministry. It does take money to produce and broadcast this program, and of course, to keep our ministry on the web, where we've been a valuable resource to our community for about 16 years now. You can donate by credit card by going to our website at whosoever.org slash donate, or you can send checks to Whosoever Ministries Incorporated, Post Office Box 727, Camden, South Carolina, 29021. Remember, Whosoever is a 501c3 nonprofit. That means all donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. May God bless you and keep you till we meet again. Music